And this is the Green Majority, your Green Majority, your tender and soft teddy bear, Stefan Hostetter, Lauren Latour, David Hostetter. This is Canada's most widely debunked environmental radio show. And we are on CIUT 89.5 FM, or your local community radio station, or on a podcast platform, Harbinger Media Network. If you hear the hideous sounds of deep-throated burping in the background during this recording, my roommate has an all-too-expressive larynx that has no necessity for the uh, ejaculatory emissions it produces um, that would invite me, that's the correct vocabulary, that would invite me into his inner life in, in a rather disgusting way, so... That's what I'm dealing with over here. I would guess and hope someone else is more widely debunked than we are. But then the burping comment sort of took me by surprise. So maybe I'm wrong. No, no, you can't debunk burping. It's not a debunkable thing. In case any of our listeners was ever wondering, do they record in a professional studio or are they just a bunch of weirdos who record in their homes? It's the it's the latter. We just hope Lauren does not get hit in the head by a falling a wrought iron skillet. So listeners understand the joke. I recorded my kitchen. And Stefan Hostetter will be interviewing Andre Forsyth. He is leading an effort at climate artwork in Malvern, right? He's a Scar he's a Scarborough man. He's not is he from Scarborough or is he just operating in Scarborough? He is both from Scarborough and operated in Scarborough. And we're gonna begin here with Stefan speaking about Diane Sachs, the yeah. ousted environmental commissioner of Ontario, and now she is, what is she doing now? I mean, she's a city council. Maybe not ousted, her job was destroyed. Yeah. So, I mean, Diane Sachs is just a jumping off point, um, partially because she is currently still, I believe, the deputy leader of the Green Party and a sitting city councillor. And more of what I want to actually talk about is the connection or the need for climate activists to see a connection between housing justice and climate justice. The, I feel like a lot of the conversations we have in the show are us just sort of bringing new things under the umbrella of climate justice or coming to the position that those things are important. But honestly, that is because all these things are interconnected and housing has to be one. And so the reason why it's Diane Sachs related, just quickly for those in not Toronto, is that she recently was elected last fall. And so it's about a little under a year of a term in. And so far, her record on climate change, she sort of ran as progressive, obviously because of the her very long and laudable climate change career. But in her time in council has been pretty consistently not great to actively quite bad on housing issues. She voted uh, not to keep warming centers open, uh, or sorry, not, to, not to reopen warming centers during uh, the cold snaps that happened earlier this year. She's voted um, against declaring house ho homelessness a, uh, an emergency and a series of other votes that have sort of shown a lack of regard towards the folks who are most um, vulnerable to extreme heat and extreme weather. You know, the people who are experiencing homelessness are the most vulnerable people in our society to these extreme acts of climate change. 
And so for me, it's frustrating to see someone who is so good and understands so well the overarching problems that exist in climate change totally fail to really show up for the people who are most impacted in our city. And so I'll come back to it a couple of times as we go to the show. There's a few other pieces about this that I want to get back to. But first to you, Laura. As the the token non-Torontonian in the group chat, I'm assuming she's been questioned about this. Do you have any idea what her rationale is? Is it just that she is somebody who subscribes to an antiquated understanding of climate justice or of climate action and environmentalism and just kind of doesn't see these two things as being connected in any meaningful way? Like, or, or like, has she been captured by the forces of evil? Like, what's... It's a great question. I mean, and honestly, one that I literally am currently working on finding out. Uh, I'm sort of slowly in the process of putting together actually a letter to send to uh, Councillor Sachs to be like, hey, curious about why you voted these ways in these places. One potential answer is that she is from a very, in a very progressive writing, only barely beat out another very strong progressive candidate in her writing. And the writing when Doug Ford amalgamated them is partially sort of downtown and partially like a richer area. And so it's not unlikely that a bulk of her votes came from sort of the the richer area within the riding. And so it's possible that she's just sort of responding to that their needs rather than sort of the needs of her whole constituency. But again, this is me really just guessing. I I will report back as I investigate this this matter. Looking forward to it. Cause cause yeah, like how how incredibly disappointing I think we sometimes at least I know I tend to do this, um, especially with municipal politics, is that uh, so few of us understand the ins and outs and like the daily ongoings of municipal politics. So you kind of just you can sometimes check the box, elect the person who you trust and then just sort of back off and leave and trust that they're doing their job as you instructed them to or as or as you're hoping they would based on sort of what they had been campaigning on and then just sort of the shorthand of of progressivism. You assume if somebody's good on environment, then they're going to be good on X, Y, Z issues, or or at least that's kind of what what we have come to hope in recent years. So the fact that she's a not delivering on that is disappointing. But then b at that that point you're making about her riding and who among them are perhaps more vocal and who actually has power when it comes to these various constituencies in Toronto is fascinating. So I I cannot wait to hear more. And maybe it's a bit too early because like Full disclosure, I haven't actually read the piece, but I did see a piece in The Grind that came out like I think like today we record on Tuesday or maybe a couple of days ago that was already kind of looking at Olivia Chow and how her first couple of days in office went and the ways in which it's potentially already setting up to be kind of a disappointing turn from a progressive leader. Would love to hear your take on that if and when you have that. I think the that piece in The Grind is interesting because it is so quick. It's been five days, but also that so when The Grind officially endorsed Olivia Chow, their sort of mantra was, we plan on holding your feet to the fire because if we don't start hitting the ground immediately, we're sort of setting ourselves up for disappointment. And part of the reason why housing is such a big deal right now in Toronto is because it's ongoing sort of passing the buck between uh, recent refugees who just got kicked out of the shelter system during the mayorless time when we only had a deputy mayor leading Jennifer McKelvey basically made the decision, uh, pushed through council or push through, I'm not sure if it's to cancel, to not allow refugees to be in city shelter systems because they said it was a federal problem. The feds were supposed to do anything about it. And so now there are these refugees who are literally just living on the street uh, because they have nowhere to go. And 
that has not been dealt with in the first five days. Very hopeful that gets dealt with, ideally before this airs. If it hasn't been dealt with before this airs, then I will say that I think that that grind piece is accurate because my God, there are people on the streets. Let them be safe in a space. Um, but yes, we'll come back a little bit to the, the ways that this is connected to climate change as we get through the news. What's interesting about most of these news stories that I feel like, especially the first few, it's like we're sort of continually to saying the same things on this show. It's like the, it's like the largest climate, climate news stories are always of a kind. And they always illustrate that no, no one who gets into power in our system appears to have the institutional capacity to care about anything. Well, well, and I think that's an important point to make. It's it's that institutional, I think you phrased it as an institutional capacity, because the person I always like to point to is, for, for, for better or worse, and I know folks in the Canadian environmental, you have a lot of feelings and opinions on him, but like Guibault, um, for those who aren't, he's our environment minister at the federal level. And he is somebody who worked in the environmental sector um, from the nonprofit side for like 30 years or something like that before he was before he was elected as an MP and then bumped up to minister of environment like he's somebody who gets it you talk to him in a room he understands where you're coming from he was one of like like to the point where he was like he like repelled off of the CN tower for greenpeace stunts like dude was like a dyed in the wool environmentalist and we see that especially in cop spaces and international spaces because he was very present in those spaces for decades and he is somebody who still had to approve a, the Bay Denor project when he became environment minister because you like you have to toe the party line. Um, and I guess in those instances when in, in municipal politics, there isn't necessarily a party, there is still an apparatus and a structure in place which it, which constrains the actions that you can or are incentivized to take. It, it limits you to neoliberal policy um, levers. Uh, so it's 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 a it's. It makes it really hard to, to act as a, as to to be a good faith actor when you're in a position of power like that. Yeah, and it's just not a democratic situation when anyone in any sort of power, even not in a democratic institution, finds themselves in a position where all of the decisions around around their job have been made so far in advance, and there's so much inertia towards the already completion of those decisions. I mean, one one example, it doesn't have to do with the economy as as it's popularly understood but for instance what's what's happening in ukraine with the u.s as we brief the U, the the russian war in ukraine it's like nobody knows what plans the u.s military had made even 10 years ago right for and for an instance of this kind of situation so it's like all of the things that we're witnessing now we have very little ability to even understand who made them and when because they just have these little these plans that they don't tell anybody about that eventually come to fruition. We just have to watch it happen. Um, anyway, so, okay, so this first story. Uh, it was recently 95 degrees Fahrenheit near the Arctic Circle. Uh, it was by far the hottest June on record globally, and climate scientists think this year will be the warmest on record. Researcher Tim Lenton of the University of Exeter was quoted by Inside Climate News as saying, these extraordinary extremes could be an early warning of tipping points towards different weather or sea ice or fire regimes. He says we call it flickering when a complex system starts to briefly sample a new regime before tipping into it. 
Uh, he adds, let's hope I'm wrong on that. I mean, I guess there's not really any point in saying that because it's sort of like maybe that constantly we're like maybe the tipping point, maybe not, so whatever. Anyway, uh, it will be warmer generally for the next two to seven years from El Nino. I feel like Stefan already said all of this like two weeks ago. And it's possible the first week of July was the hottest seven days in a row we've ever seen. And the Guardian quotes atmospheric researcher Dr. Karsten Haustein is saying that chances are that the month of July will be the warmest ever, and with it the hottest month ever. Uh, ever meaning uh, since the Eemian, that's the interglacial period, which is 120,000 years ago. Yeah, and so just quickly to go back to this thought around housing, and this is exactly why, right? Like, we, A, to your point about tipping points, yeah, we, we keep mentioning it's going to happen until it happens. And who's to say that this is not just what it is, right? Like, I believe all, I think July did have about seven days in it that were each the hottest day on record. I just saw a, a note just a couple of seconds ago that Iran, a airport in Iran was 66 degrees Celsius today, which means at 65, you would like scald your tongue on a hot drink. And the air temperature was 66. So if you need a reason why making sure everyone can be in a place that is shaded and ideally the next step, of course, would be cool, right? Like it's one step to shade. It's the next step to be able to actually give people cooling ability, which the right to cooling. There's an article I saw recently about how in BC landlords are trying to prevent people from installing air, uh, um, air conditioners which is basically just condemning your red tees to death in a heat dome. And yet that's a conversation that's apparently not verboten. I saw that headline and did not read the article about the BC landlords thing. Can you give me like a one sentence Coles note? Like, like what's the rationale? My understanding is that it is related to like energy use. But yeah, give me two seconds. I'll landlord BC. Um, Thanks. I appreciate that. I, on the other hand, I'm 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 really glad you're keeping those like solutions and the connections to housing front and center because I, on the other hand, listeners don't know this, but my friends know this. I've been trying really hard to spend less time on my phone in in recent weeks, and I've actually been very successful at it. I've people would will be thrilled to know that I've reduced my screen time from like between three to four down to like between like like hovering around the two hour mark, which for me is really good. Anyway, um, if anybody wants advice or wants to talk about it, it is all I want to talk about ever. Exhibit A. But no, but what I'm finding is happening is like the whole reason I wanted to spend less time on my phone is because like I need to just like spend more time with my own thoughts and with people around me. And what it means is like, oh, no, now I'm spending more time with my own thoughts and like, oh, no, there's a lot of things to be really anxious and upset about um, more so than I was sort of like really letting in before. It's like before I was processing the the sort of the surface level information about all of these terrible things that are happening. And it's like, now that I don't just have my phone buried in TikTok all the time, it's like, oh, and now I have to feel the feelings associated with those terrible headlines. So like, proceed with caution, babes. Uh, Feeling that dread is unpleasant. So just before we go to the music break, I have the full information about the BC thing, which is that the government is actually offering people $50 off the purchase of qualifying air conditioners. so to encourage people who are vulnerable to get cooling. And the response to that is landlords are now threatening to evict people if they do install those air conditioners. 
this particular landlord is claiming that older buildings lacked the electrical, the electrical capacity. And so they couldn't do it that way. You know, there are, who knows what is actually true. But the thing that is definitely true is that if you do not have cooling and the heat dome happens, you are in deep, deep trouble. And and I mean, sorry, just like I know we need to go to a break, but it's like what's what's also what's additionally terrible about that is that my assumption is that's an illegal rule to enforce. Your landlord cannot put that in your in your lease and they cannot legally enforce that. But that does not mean that they won't enforce that. And and I understand every province is different in terms of like their landlord tenant board and their hearing process and and how they they usually rule, whether they rule in favor of the landlord or the tenant usually. But like, I know were that to all go down in Ontario and a landlord were to illegally evict somebody on kind of like this false pretense, it kind of doesn't really matter. That person's still going to be SOL. They're going to be out of a home. The landlord tenant board, if it even gets to a hearing, would probably end up ruling in favor of the landlord anyway. So it's like, even if even if these are technically illegal actions being taken by landlords, it doesn't mean that they're not going to take them anyway and that the repercussions are going to be relatively small for those landlords. And this is the thing that I think is constantly something that I that grapple with, which is that like in these decisions, like there's one person who is like, ah, man, I don't know if it's going to be great for me if all my tenants got have more electrical use, use in the AC. And the other person is like, I either risk losing my house or risk dying when it's too hot and like the scales of risk are just so drastically imbalanced that it becomes a bit mind-blowing and we're gonna take an easy listening music break and return with the green majority I spoke too soon this is not exactly easy listening This is the band that I personally yell in. It is called Yound, Y-O-U-N-D. And this is our latest song called William Bond.
Once again, yours truly on the microphone. Band is called Yound. Y-O-U-N-D. You can check us out on Instagram. Yound Band. If you are in Toronto on July 30th, come check us out. We are going to play a free set at the Baby G for Happy Sundays. No cover. Gaijin Smash prototypical DJ, and Yound, and headlining is not a band. And we are continuing with climate news before, before Stefan speaks with Andre Forsyth about a climate art project in Scarborough. Um, a report from the Climate Disclosure Project, which is actually just called the CDP now for some reason. They said, they said formerly Climate Disclosure Project, anyway. Uh, surveyed 81 oil and gas companies and found that they are planning no significant reduction in oil production before 2030. A lot of them are instead looking for new oil and gas. And Reuters reports that there is, quote, a renewed commitment to oil and gas after Shell and BP went back on pledges to reduce output and invest in renewables as part of the energy transition. It responds to pressure from a majority of investors to maximize their oil and gas profits rather than invest in lower margin renewable energy businesses. I can't let this story go by and not just hammer home the point that oil companies are not going to solve climate change. And the fact that we are having a cop that is being led by a former oil executive later this year should wake us all up to the reality that we're just totally off base. One of the architects of the Paris Accord, who for a while was defending sort of a broad tent kind of way to approach the existence of oil companies and in other industries in conversations, has very recently sort of come out and did a mea culpa and been like, actually, you know what? I was wrong. Oil companies, not going to be our, a solution, should not be at the table, cut them out, which of course is depressingly late in the same way that so many uh, people who were in positions of power seem to find their voice afterwards. You know, back to Dave's point earlier about how, where people come from, or once they get in positions of power, suddenly that they are inept about taking things. They also then refine their voice as soon as they're out of power, which is very convenient for them. And not for us. Well, it just shows that, sorry, their acquisition of the power is almost meaningless because the system that they're stepping into is predetermined by things that are always, always beyond everybody's control, right? They're beyond everybody's control because it's just the logic of the, of capitalist accumulation. Well, and, and also like 
something I found kind of frustrating about, oh, a particular ex uh, uh, minister of environment um, for Canada, how they're all just so stoked and so ready to hop on kind of like, I don't know, whatever the cool, hip, lefty, progressive jargon of the day is and show up in all these public spaces and be like, look, I've always been a champion. I've always been here. I've always been ready. And it's like, okay, cool. When's when's the book coming out? How much are you making in speakers fees? Like (laughs) just the positioning of oneself as like a rad climate activist leader when it's like you you had the power before and you failed to wield it adequately. And yes, the whole point of this conversation is us been acknowledging that the system is rigged and that it's really hard for even good actors to behave accordingly within it. But it's like, I don't know. Come on, man. Why am I supposed to trust you now? If like <laughs> I'm disgruntled. So it was recently come out that DuPont and 3M, the world's two biggest makers of forever chemicals, covered up the research uh, about the toxicity of their products and lied to their employees and the public about it for at least two decades. Uh, The UK under Rishi Sunak is probably going to fail to produce the 11.6 billion pounds of international climate funding they agreed to at COP26. Texas has been able to weather recent heat waves without power shortages, in large part because of wind and solar, which can be more resilient in extreme weather than gas plants, according to Heated. Uh, And Texas is expanding wind and solar because of this advantage. Um, Some places in Texas have been seeing temperatures as high as 51 degrees Celsius, with over 40 million people in surrounding states under heat warnings. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has ended mandatory water breaks for construction workers. And it is this last story that brings me back one more time to this conversation about housing. Because A, that story is absolutely atrocious. Abbott is one of the most evil people in existence. There are a few other things he's done recently are also atrocious. But in that bill, it actually undermines local bylaws. So even if you have a bylaw in a city that says you must give the water breaks, this bill actually prevent, keeps you from doing it. But why it connects to housing is there's this graph going around in a few places uh, that shows where housing prices in cities that are with Democratic governors are drastically higher right now than housing prices in, in cities where there are conservative um, governors. And one of the theories here is that like NIMBYs do a better job on liberal cities to prevent housing bills, et cetera. But something else that cannot be understated, I got to say, is that in these places where the construction workers aren't protected at all, that also will deliver cheaper housing. One of the other talking points has been that in these democratic states, there are stronger unions that are protecting people. And so that brings up housing costs. And that is an example. That is one of the problems that we should identify as to why housing is more expensive. And to that, I say absolutely not. You cannot put people who are homeless or experiencing homelessness and need, need a place to live and pit them against construction workers who are not being given breaks for water despite it being 51 degrees. That is a completely unreasonable binary when you have enough yachts that orcas tipping them is a conversation piece. 
we desperately need to reframe the problem here to go back to the other piece that da- that we've been talking about a bit about how it seems like we can't get ourselves out of this cycle, pitting the construction workers against the uh, the people who need housing is only going to get us. It's a race to the bottom that we have to avoid. And the places we have to pay attention to are the people who have 16 houses or a yacht and can drastically pay more money to subsidize housing. When you have that sort of like you're pitting the houseless against like the against like, I don't know, workers in some cases, the working poor. It's like that is a version of like uh, maybe not com- strictly lateral violence in the strict understanding of the word but like that is a version of lateral violence in in which those of us who lack power and agency and socioeconomic stability are being intentionally distracted by silly little infights and the only people it benefits are the people with multiple yachts who are now at the mercy of the orcas you know what i mean like it's yeah, if ever anybody is trying to tell you that you, as a person who makes less than, a, like, I don't know, $500,000 a year, should be concerned more so with the ways in which the working poor are, are, are cheating you out of, like, lower housing costs, like, I don't know, it doesn't pass the smell test. Take take a second, figure out who is actually benefiting from that argument, because it's certainly yeah. not you. Yeah, or yeah, or the people who need houses, right? Like, or, or, the or place to live. Who need houses. The one other story that I don't want to go totally unrecognized is the story that DuPont and 3M uh, who make what are called forever, forever chemicals, which is a terrifying name, just to get out there, that they've lied about their toxicity in employees um, because it can be so easy, I think, for climate change when it is, you know, burning places up across the world and messing with the whole system to become so overwhelming that we can miss all the other ways environmental racism shows up or environmental damaging shows up and pollution shows up. But this would be the biggest scandal if we were dealing with oil and gas, right? Like if we didn't have to spend all our time trying to convince ourselves to stop subsidizing oil and gas, we should be talking more about all these other issues. And it's hard to focus on all of the different ways we are messing up this planet. And so we do get absorbed to the what is sort of the most obvious and biggest fight. But like you could do an entire show about all the environmental destruction and never even mention climate change because there's so many other things happening like this kind of story or the plastics in our bloodstream kind of stuff. And yet, you know, here we are. Long story short, industry's messing up our lives in so many ways. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. As we earlier on the show, I'm here with Andre Forsyth chatting about 
update newly launched or just to be launched art project in the Malvern community of Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto. And before we get to that, very quickly, I do just want to note that the last half of the show was recorded one day earlier than this interview. And in that one day, there has been action to help the refugees who were on the streets. And Diane Sachs was at least there to support that. So I don't want people hearing the, uh, the comments earlier in the show and being like, you did not give respect, at least to that one piece. I still have many other questions for the particular counselor, which we will cover later as I get answers. But I at least wanted to acknowledge those two things as we have more information. But suffice to say, stoked to have you here, Andre. Thanks for being here. I'm stoked to be here and thank you for having me. So first and foremost, can you just give us a heads up of what is happening in your launcher? So I know that sounds like a simple question. And I normally have long-winded answers in the first place. So I'm going to try and keep this as tight as possible, given the fact that we've had major shifts. So we basically just launched, as you said, probably our biggest project so far. And when I say probably, I mean absolutely, definitely our biggest project so far in Malvern, which is in Scarborough, around Nielsen 401 area. And so, and when I say we launched, I mean, Sunday night at one in the morning, we were out there installing pieces, which was awesome. And our, so our community engagement has started to begin, but really goes public on Saturday. Amazing. And so can you give us a teaser? Cause it, it has not gone public yesterday, but can you give you a teaser of, of what this is? Yes, absolutely. So this really, so this project represents an evolution in the way that we work for sure. It's a huge shift from our learning that we've gathered working in climate art over the past few years. And it's so much of a shift that it's restructuring our entire organization and what type of projects that we go forward. And what that means essentially is we've done a lot of climate art, art work before, some really exciting things, but what the biggest shift here is is the role of community in terms of empowering, actually moving things forward. So I, I think we tend to look at climate as a separate issue. Most of the time we've discussed this several times. I've heard it discussed on, on the majority several times. And the approach that we're taking here is to not think of climate as just a separate issue, but what role do climate solutions play in empowering and, and imagining what the future of the community looks like as we transition the way we lived, the way we work, the way we everything basically, and the way, the way that we kind of view and relate to the world and, and those around us. And so that thinking community first has drastically changed the way that we, we are approaching projects going forward. Yeah, that's super cool. And so one of the things that we talked about actually earlier on this show was that to cover climate change and to think about climate change, you sort of get centered, you get sort of get hit with the same depression pieces again and again and again. You know, like there's only so many times you can talk about how it's the hottest time ever, or there's only so many times that you can cover another weather event. Oh, there's only so many times that you can say that, oh, the oil industry has once again decided to not do things before you begin to feel a little bit like a broken record. And so the fact that you found a different and shifting 
experience for yourself within this kind of movement to me is exciting and interesting from the jump. And, and especially because it also, I think, gives you an opportunity to embrace and move forward more positively and more, more hopefully because of that embracing of community. And so I'm curious if, what kind of conversation are you hoping to start with this, with this installation? Because that sounds like, you know, you're not trying to deliver information. It more sounds like you're trying to start a conversation. So that is an, that is an excellent way to phrase it, to take part and facilitate a conversation within the community. When we, as you mentioned, when it comes to this summer has been pretty difficult already so far with wildfire smoke, with the refugee challenges in Toronto and these, these experiences are palpable and they, and they rightly so cause immediate emotional reactions, which are valid reactions. It makes sense to be afraid. It makes sense to be upset. And so we don't want to take away anything from that. However, part of the problem that we find with this is that those of us who have been privy to what sort privy to the type of challenges that climate change is going to bring to our everyday lives, know that these things are coming. We've seen them coming. However, what's missing is we don't have a narrative we, that incorporates knowing that this is going to come and how we've planned to manage and overcome these challenges. And so what, so it makes sense that when, when we're confronted with these developments, that we go to fear right away. And so how do we, the question that we ask is how do we, how do we avoid that? And so I, I think historically we've been like, we've done a bunch of political engagements where we're trying to put pressure on our, on our governments to build that narrative and roll up that plan. And that's valid work. And we continue to do that. However, we can't wait for our governments. We, we, the, we know the roles of our communities need to be empowered. And so instead of waiting for government, we're trying to do that and see how art can empower communities to find that strength, to reconnect with the strength of community, because that's, that's existed as long as humans have. And then to challenge the way the community can look like going forward and what role art can play to facilitate that. But that was all my preamble to the actual, so the question that you actually asked was what sort of conversation are we hoping to start? And so I would, so the way that I would answer that question would be an honest conversation is where we have to start off. So the first stage of our, of the art that has, is, that now exists in Malvern is created with the intention to, to, to engage honest conversation and stimulate honest conversation with the artwork that we put out with between the artists, between our team and, and residents of Melbourne, but also amongst Melbourne residents. I think it's Melbourne is a very rich community. It's been around for a long time. It's very vibrant. There's lots of culture there, but you, a lot of times you go there and it feels empty. If you, despite the fact that there's so many people who live there and so much going on, you don't it, that's, that's not reflected in their community. I think I'm used to being downtown, even though I, I grew up partly in Malvern, my parents grew up a little bit there. I was more North Scarborough than, than Malvern specifically, but I think having lived downtown and in major cities a lot, I'm used to a lot of 
community and folks interacting and walking on the street and and seeing art all around me all the time. And that's something that doesn't exist there and something that we take for granted when we're living downtown. And so when we're when we're thinking about what do neighborhoods look like in the future, what do what do communities look like going going forward in the future? How do we how can art play a role in in helping residents connect with one another, rebuilding and overcoming isolation? And so I would say we're we're trying to start a series of conversations, conversations that already exist. However, they're not very public. The type of conversations you have in 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 your families with your friends, how can we bring those conversations out of these kind of siloed, separate, isolated environments and bring it into the community to real and help folks realize that many people are having this conversation and how that can connect people together and then because we're having an honest conversation now, how does that empower us to take steps and move forward? So that's where we're trying to start from is honest conversation about that or stimulate the honest conversations that are already taking place, but bring them to a more public sphere. Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And so can we talk a little bit if we're, st- if we're talking about where we starting, can you talk about the artists who created the works? Yeah, so, uh, well, for sure. So the, so the artist who's in charge of this phase of the project is called Renaissance, who also has roots in Malvern. And I've been looking to work with Renaissance for a while. And I tried a couple of times to force it, and it didn't make sense. So it never happened before. And I'm so happy that this is the project that we actually ended up connecting on. His unique relationship experiences, understanding of Malvern brings an authenticity to his work, brings a relatability to it. I think that's one of the things when we, and that was a huge factor for us when we were choosing who to work with. I think a lot of times when we see community engagement happen, which is normally in like a town hall or in a community center or something like that, a lot of those times is really kind of city run and people are coming from outside of that community and coming in and that disconnect is can't not that it can't be overcome but is a is a barrier and so it was really important that we work with an artist who knows malvern who can relate to it and speaks the language that is spoken in that in that community so collaborating with him over the past little while to to create the first six pieces that we put out in the community now has been one of the most exciting things we've done in, in our organization so far, period. Amazing. And so speaking of that community, and again, it hasn't been formally launched yet. And so this might be only real early, but I know you've been in and around, out of the community for the last little week or so getting this stuff up. And so I know some people have seen it. How has the response been so? So, th- so this is a tricky question. The response, the pieces are generating responses, which is what we want it to do. One of the pieces that we put up at about 1 a.m. on Sunday night, one of the residents walked by to stop and share with us how he felt about the piece, which in this case was positive. We're not anticipating only positive responses. The, the point is responses and honest responses. That's, that's really what this phase is about. 
And so I would, I already, we were very happy at 1 a.m. on a Sunday night that we're, we're garnering responses. But even during this week, we've gotten a bunch of calls from folks who didn't know they were coming, but knew we were going to be doing something there and called and were excited. And then I spent some time there today. And it's great to see people stopping by, pausing, all pre-launch. So this is, I'm, I'm very excited. We, for each, so for each piece, what we've built into them is a way to engage. So either through social channels, or if you want to engage anonymously through our, 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 through our website. And that's what I'm really excited to, to start receiving is those responses and to, to get a sense of what people are feeling and to amplify that. And, and so that the community can see that. So we'll be doing a bunch of community engagement to, to support that and have those conversations. So, I mean, so this isn't a question I, I previewed you on, so feel free to take it in the way you want, but I, you mentioned that this is phase one. I wonder if you can talk a yeah. little bit about the ne- upcoming phases. No. That's <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. Mm. It's hilarious. So, but let me explain why. So we've designed this. So really, what, as, as I said, this is the first time that we are deploying this kind of approach with our practice. And so there's a lot of iteration and we're challenging ourselves to innovate so that we can be responsive to, to the community and how, what, what their feedback is and allow for that to, to shape our design process, which we think is very, very important. One of the goals that we are trying to achieve with this shift in our practice is what we've learned from our, some of our previous projects is though they've garnered great responses, they're very short. So, okay, great. Oh, this week we got a great response and got some great activity, but that's not enough though. How, so making sure developing a relationship with the folks that you're working with, demonstrating that commitment, making sure, because this is the changes that need to come on a community level aren't going to happen overnight. They, they, they're going to happen over years and consistent relationship building. And so we've put together kind of our, our theory of action on how we're expecting that to go, but we want that to be responsive to the, to the community. And we don't want to project it, project that on, onto, onto the residents. So you're going to have to tune in if you want to find out that answer or have me back on the show, you know, either way. Yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll, fi- I think I'll follow along. I think I can m- handle that one. But let me ask you a question I know you can definitely answer, which is how can folks see the work? So that is a great question. So as I mentioned, this, this shift in our practice has caused many shifts in, in our organization. One of which is, so we've, lo- we're launching a, we've just launched a new website and new social channel, which is Canadian Community Challenge. Some of you who may be familiar with our work may know us as Canadian Climate Challenge or School for Climate. This ship, we really don't want to project climate onto the, the work here. If climate comes up in our engagement with the community, then that's great. That's wonderful. However, we need to be told that from the community and from the work that, that that's an area of interest. So if you, so CanadianCommunityChallenge.ca canadiancommunitychallenge.ca or at canadiancommunitychallenge on Instagram. 
So follow us right now. Go there. Take a second. Canadian Community Challenge. There's nothing there yet, but there will be on on Saturday. But yes, and we'll be blasting that out. For anyone who's one of our followers, we'll be blasting that out over our channels on our email list. The green majority will obviously be blasting it out on their social channels. Yep, yep. I just signed up seven for that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. As the person who runs those social channels, you know it. Yes, and also come to Melbourne. Yes. Come and check it out. Like there is not a lot of anyone who downtown, like we take our public art downtown for granted. There, I, not to say there's no public art in, in Melbourne, but the richness that, that brings to our community, like, yeah, come, so come check it out. Amazing. So where can they go to check it out? Ooh, good question. So there are six current locations where in Melbourne, where, where the artwork is, I will, I'll give you three and then I'll let you explore for you for the other three. Cause that's part of the, the fun. Like the is, is, is the curiosity and, and seeing it and, and um, like stumbling upon it or, or looking through it. That's part of what we want to generate, right? Like it's to familiarize with the community. If you find one and you find out there's more, where is it? And, and that causing you to kind of explore and reconnect with the community is really part of that strategy. So, but I will give three away. One is that Lester B. Pearson, a high school. One is at the, the library at Sewell's and Nielsen Road, just east of Nielsen on Sewell's. And one is at Morningside in 401, just as you're getting onto the highway. All right. And then the other three can be found by exploring the area. Or if you watch our channels over the next week or so, then those locations will inevitably pop up there. So follow us or go to Malvern and you can find out more. Amazing. And so you've already given us the ways you can keep following you. So my last question was going to be moot. And so instead, I will do our classic throwing to you for a last word. Before I do, this has been Andre Forsyth, the founder and executive director of Canadian Community Challenge, also formerly known as Canadian Climate Challenge. Take it away, Andre. Any last thoughts? Yeah. So if I can leave us with one last thought, it is the reason why we're doing this, this work. It is inevitable when, as we see the news that's developing around the world and increasingly so in Canada, in our own cities, in our own communities, to be afraid without question and to feel alone and to feel isolated and, and therefore feel disempowered. And so the whole reason that we are doing this work is because we feel like where folks have the autonomy, where folks have the ability to feel that they can make a difference is in the communities that they already exist in. Reconnecting with those communities, community strength is where we're going to move things forward for sure. And where we can reclaim the, na- the narrative and the story of where we want our communities to go. The whole, all of the issues we see on the news every day, if they actually show up on the news, can be overwhelming. If you think about neighborhood, if you think about your community changes there, connecting with the community organizations that exist there and rebuilding that kind of collective power, then all of a sudden you're not alone and things are much more achievable. And we're seeing that with labor. We're seeing that with arts. We're seeing that with sports. We're seeing 
folks find their power and actually achieve outcomes. So we're very excited to experiment with this approach. You do not have to be from Malvern to engage with this project. If it's something you would like to see in your neighborhood, we'd like to hear that. If it's an approach you don't agree with, or which please share your opinions. We are not a firm. This needs to be an honest conversation. We have thick skin. And so we'd love for you to follow us on Instagram at Canadian Community Challenge or come to the website at CanadianCommunityChallenge.ca and, and please engage in the conversation and let's see, let us know what we can do better. Let us know what we're doing well. Oh, and I forgot tomorrow, Saturday, July 22nd is Junior Carnival in Malvern, one of the biggest events that happen each year. It's a great time to come check out the community and we're going to be there all day from 11 till 8. So please, if you have free time on Saturday, July 22nd, come out and, and come see our work and we'll be there to, to connect with you.